very cool. He can make it and play it. So let's turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. And I'm just going to begin by reading those verses. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. You his Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Well, we have finally arrived at the conclusion to the letter to the Colossians. And Barb did some checking for me this week to see how long it has taken me to preach through this book. Thank you, Barb, for doing that. I started on October the 2nd, 2022 with my introduction that was entitled Important Epaphras. And this marks the 18th and final sermon in the series on Colossians. So the verses we're studying today are Paul's closing greetings and mentions of various of his associates and acquaintances. And it's easy when we read through letters in the New Testament like Colossians to just quickly read through these sections um, without a whole lot of thought about what's said or about who is being mentioned. Uh, Because after all, the instruction part is over, the doctrine part is usually over at this point, and the author is just saying goodbye. So it's it's, it's almost time to move on, we think, as we read through these things to something else. Well, this is one of the great things about uh, getting to be a preacher at a church where expository teaching is our tradition. Um, We don't, or at least we try not to, move too quickly through any portions of Scripture, even portions like this. So I've had opportunity this week to take a closer look at who these people are and examine what the Scriptures say about them. Uh, So to see if there's anything that we can glean uh, that will be useful for our own lives in looking at theirs. So when I was in in Young Life, um, at at the home of several different of the older leaders at, at the time that I knew, there was a photograph that a lot of them had. Um, and it was displayed whether it was in their office or in, in their home. I can't remember. Mike Bowling might have this one, actually. This, this, he'll, he'll be able to tell me afterwards. Um, but it was a, a picture of them 
themselves and a bunch of other leaders from many years gone by. And beneath the photo, in the frame, there was a verse attached as a caption to that photo. And it was this verse, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you had become very dear to us. These verses here in Colossians that we're at today are just like this. It's, it's like a group photo of folks in, in Paul's life and ministry that he cared deeply for. A verbal, written group photo. You see, within Paul's letters and in the book of Acts, I heard from one source that I consulted uh, in studying these verses this week that there are over a hundred names of individuals uh, that are they're mentioned that were associated with Paul in some way that, that are throughout either the book of Acts or the letters that Paul writes. So it would seem that Paul was not just a good evangelist and a good church planter, he was a good friend also. So today we get to meet some of his friends. And it'll be kind of fun to meet them in heaven, I think, someday. So today, though, that means we have a 10-point sermon. Are you guys ready for this? 10-point sermon? Eric preaches long. This is really going to be extra long. No, it's not. It's not. Don't worry. Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on each one of them. Paul names 10 people, though, in this, this, this section, in these 12 verses. And I, and I believe there's a lesson that we can glean from each mention. So, uh, so, so that's what I will do as we go through this list of people. Um, and this is what I'm planning on doing for two things for each of them. I'm just going to see what we can learn about this person from what's mentioned here and implied uh, about them in this passage and, and also in any other passages that they might appear in, uh, in, in Scripture. And the second thing I want to do is I want to see if I can identify a worthy lesson that we can apply to our own lives. So let me pray for us and then we'll dive in. Father in heaven, I thank you for this group photo of Paul's friends. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that when he put pen to paper, and, and, and wrote this final sentence here. It's right after he had just said the names of a bunch of people that he knew and loved. And Lord God, uh, what a treasure it must have been to be one of these people included in this letter. And I pray, God, that you'd bless us as we, as we take a little time to investigate each one of them and to see if there's something that we can glean from them. And I pray that you would just um, allow our time to be fruitful, draw us closer to you, as we ponder Paul's friends. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first name mentioned is Tychicus, right? Say it with me, Tychicus. Tychicus, thank you. You actually said it after me. You didn't say it with me, but that's okay. Um, The text tells us that Tychicus was coming for the purpose of bringing them information. Um, And this information that he brought, whether it was verbally um, and in the form of this very letter, because he's the one who carried this letter, it would have had two effects that Paul intended, and they were these that they might know about the circumstances of Paul and his associates. And the second one is that he might encourage their hearts. So it's probably true that Tychicus was going to teach and preach while while he was with them there in Colossae. Tychicus is mentioned mentioned in numerous other places in the New Testament. And we first meet him in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. He's also in Ephesians 6.21. If you were in Sunday school, you saw that mention there. He's also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4, verse 12. And he's mentioned in Titus, chapter 3, verse 12. We learn in all of these mentions that Tychicus was likely from the province, a province in Asia. And he spent time in Ephesus. Because when we first meet him, he was departing with Paul from Ephesus to go to Macedonia. And then later on to go back to Asia to the city of Troas. 
He was with Paul during that episode in Acts chapter 20, where Paul was preaching in, Tro- in Troas, and he went on and on into the evening. And the young man, Eutychus, you guys remember Eutychus? Eutychus had two falls. The first fall, he fell asleep, and the second fall, he fell out the window uh, where he dozed off. So uh, Tychicus was there when all that happened. He was one of the seven men that accompanied Paul, that represented the churches that contributed to Paul's collection for the poor in Jerusalem when there was a famine. He seems to have been Paul's personal envoy with him in Rome during his imprisonment also. Remember, Colossians was written when Paul was in prison. Yet he was sent by Paul on the errand of delivering letters that Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. And he delivered them to the region of Asia. Uh, He delivered the letter to the Ephesians, as it has come to be known to us. Um, This letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon would have been with him as well uh, when he brought Onesimus with him. So in order for Tychicus to get to Colossae from Ephesus in the west, which is fairly certainly the way that he came, he would have gone through the city of Laodicea first as it, as it laid west of the city of Colossae. If you were in Sunday school today, you would have, you would have heard a lot more about this, but you weren't, uh, some of you at least. Um, so I believe that in verse 16, the letter from Laodicea is none other than the letter to the Ephesians that we have in the New Testament. So you can always go back and listen to that if you're interested in why I think that. But we learn from Acts that Paul was in prison in Rome for two years. So Tychicus was with Paul from at least Ephesus on Paul's third missionary journey all the way back to Jerusalem to to deliver the collection. And he was with Paul when Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. So he was very possibly with Paul on that arduous journey to Rome. And with him when he faced numerous different trials, with the trial before Felix, and with Festus, and with Agrippa. During all of that, he remained at the apostle's side. Paul calls him three things in these verses, in Colossians 4. He calls him beloved brother, he calls him faithful servant, and he calls him fellow bond servant, or slave. And these three point to Paul's, one, affection for Tychicus, his beloved brother, his trust in Tychicus, he was a faithful servant, and his comfort drawn from the constant company of his friend Tychicus, a fellow bond servant. So Tychicus is mentioned also in two of the pastoral epistles. In Titus, Paul asks the pastor of that church on the island of Crete, which was named, whose name was Titus, that's why that's named Titus, he asks Titus to come and visit him in Nicopolis. And he indicates to Titus that he's going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to take his place in his pastoral responsibilities so that Titus can be free to make the voyage to see Paul. 2 Timothy, there's a very similar mention of Tychicus. Paul is writing to Timothy, who Paul desires to see one last time before he is executed. You see, 2 Timothy is written right at the very end of Paul's life. So he pleads with, with Timothy to make every effort to come to me soon. And Timothy at this time was pastoring the church that was in Ephesus. So Paul tells Timothy that he has sent Tychicus to Ephesus, perhaps to fill in for Timothy as interim pastor while he journeys to visit Paul. Tychicus likely yet again carried that same letter, that letter to the the second letter of Timothy to give to Timothy. So Tychicus was truly a, a faithful servant, a beloved brother. And I think what a picture emerges when we consider the person of Tychicus in Paul's life. 
there are many lessons that we can draw from the life of Tychicus. And, and I'll just point out the most prominent lesson that comes to my mind when I ponder his life, and that is the importance of being dependable. The importance of being dependable. Tychicus seems to have uh, been ever at the side of the Apostle Paul, and he set aside his own desires to be of service to Paul's ministry. We don't have record of anything that Tychicus ever said. No sermons, no Sunday schools, no songs, no conversations, none of that. We just have record that he was there. We don't know what sort of expertise or skills or special abilities that he might have had. Warren Wiersbe um, said the following about Tychicus. He says, Someone has said that the greatest ability in the world is dependability. And this is true. Paul could depend on Tychicus to get the job done, end quote. This is a worthy lesson for us today because we spend a lot of time thinking about and seeking to develop special abilities that we hope will make us more marketable and will cause uh, employers to pay a higher price for our expertise. Yet none of these abilities that we acquire will be worth much at all if your character is one that is not dependable. Do you show up? Do you show up consistently and persistently? Do you stay long enough to prove your commitment? Do you do not just what you're asked, but what's needed? The greatest ability in the world is dependability. I like that quote, and I'm going to leave you with that quote to ponder as you ponder Tychicus' life and your own life. But let's move on. The next person in our text is Onesimus. Paul mentions... Onesimus, um, to the Colossians that Onesimus is one of their number. But he says this after he refers to him as a faithful and beloved brother. So if Colossians was all that we had to get acquainted with Onesimus, we would never know a very important piece of information about his life. The only other mention of Onesimus' name is in Philemon 1 verse 10. But the entirety of the letter to Philemon is really about what needs to be done with this person, Onesimus. So, um, the, uh, Ones- he says in Philemon 1 verse 10, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. So based on that verse, we see that Onesimus had become one of Paul's spiritual children. In other words, Paul had led Onesimus to Christ. And this happened at some point during Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome. It's also in Philemon that we learn that Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. Apparently, he had run away from Philemon and made his way to Rome, and somehow he met Paul. It would seem that he stayed close in association with Paul while he was there in that prison, based on the description of him in Colossians 4.9, and also in the way that Paul describes him in Philemon. In verses 11 to 13 of Philemon, Paul says, Onesimus was formerly useless to you, but now he's useful both to you and to me. I've sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. So Paul wanted to keep him with him. But in addition to becoming very helpful to Paul, he had also become dearly loved by Paul. But it would seem that Onesimus had wronged Philemon in some way. Uh, In Philemon, it goes on to say, If he has wronged you in any way, or owes you anything, Philemon, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. 
Paul pleads further with Philemon regarding his treatment of Onesimus, saying, For perhaps Onesimus was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. So Paul was looking out for Onesimus' well-being, even though he was a slave of Philemon. In the letter to the Colossians, Paul never mentions Onesimus' status as a slave. So we wouldn't know that if all we had was Colossians. He simply refers to him as one of your number, a member who had a very important task as a representative of the apostle alongside Tychicus to bring important information to that congregation. You recall from earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verses 10 to 11, Paul said that you have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This is key. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Onesimus was a real world embodiment of this principle of the renewal and the transformation that occurs for those who are in Christ. And that's the lesson for us to glean from Onesimus. Because upon hearing and believing the gospel, Onesimus learned from Paul, he confessed his sins and he repented of them. And this willingness and desire to go back to one that he had wronged in order to reconcile displayed the transformation in Onesimus' life that the gospel had brought about. Onesimus was a new man when he went back to Colossae. They would have known him. But something was different about him when he came back. His status as a slave seemed strange and unfitting. They couldn't look down on him anymore. They couldn't see him in any way as lesser than themselves. Because he, after all, was, was highly treasured by none other than the Apostle Paul, who would have been the most legendary at this point. And there he stood in their midst, alongside the important and well-known figure of Tychicus, relaying vital information and encouragement to their church about what was going on in Paul's ministry. The great Christmas hymn comes to mind, and Katie just sang that this past week. Truly He taught us to love one another, it says. His law is love and His gospel is peace. Chains shall He break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Transformation is what comes to mind when I think of Onesimus. He grabbed hold of the gospel and he was transformed. And you will find yourself transformed if you grab onto the gospel like he did. Let's move on. Aristarchus is our next character. He's mentioned in verse 10. He is described as Paul's fellow prisoner. And uh, he sends his greetings to the Colossians. We know that the Colossian church emerged from Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus is where we first meet Aristarchus in the account of Paul's ministry. So it's very possible that Aristarchus had some friends from Colossae that he met in Ephesus. He's mentioned specifically in Philemon as one who sends greetings there to Philemon. So it's very possible that he knew Philemon personally. Aristarchus is mentioned elsewhere. He's mentioned in Acts 19.29 and Acts 20 verse uh, four, Acts 27, verse 2, he's mentioned in Philemon, 1.24. Paul again calls him his fellow prisoner here in Colossians. I just want to point that out again. In Philemon, he's simply called a fellow worker. 
Philemon and Colossians were written at the exact same time. So it, would be, so, so it could be that Aristarchus was not a literal prisoner. Um, he may have just been one like Tychicus who so identified with and cared for Paul that it was as if he shared in his imprisonment. But it could be that he was imprisoned with Paul. We do know this for a fact, that from the account in Acts 19.29 that Aristarchus was one of Paul's associates who was arrested along with Paul in Ephesus when there was that massive riot that broke out in Ephesus. Do you remember that? So Aristarchus was arrested at that point in time with Paul. So if Aristarchus was not literally a prisoner when Paul wrote Colossians, he had at least been a prisoner with Paul at one point during his ministry. So I think of Aristarchus and what lesson from the life of him emerges for us. Well, the one thing that comes to my mind is the importance of sacrifice for the cause of Christ. MacArthur notes that Aristarchus chose to make Paul's lifestyle his own. That he did that speaks of his sympathetic, caring heart. He gave up his own freedom to minister to Paul's needs, end quote. How willing are we to bear the cost of serving Christ? Are we willing to bear such a cost as Aristarchus did if it's required of us someday to be imprisoned, to be arrested? Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Aristarchus was willing to lose a whole lot in his life by being in ministry alongside the Apostle Paul. Paul himself spoke of sacrifice in his ministry. In Philippians 3, 8, he says, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Is Christ worth it in your life? for you to sacrifice? Does your life reflect your willingness to sacrifice for the gospel? That's the lesson from Aristarchus. Let's move on. Mark, along with Aristarchus, sends greetings, and he's called the cousin of Barnabas. And Barnabas is treated here as someone that the Colossians would have probably already known or heard of. Paul gives them a a parenthetical instruction, though, about Mark. And I kind of envision Paul sort of shielding his mouth and speaking from the side when he says, you received instructions about Mark. You know, if he comes to you, welcome him. Um, obviously, you know, that's my conjecture. But these instructions uh, that, he, that he alludes to in detail would have probably been given by Tychicus and Onesimus in their report of Paul's affairs, the circumstances of Paul's life back in verse 7. Or they possibly could have come from Peter or Barnabas um, himself. The story of Mark, though, is one that we are likely more familiar with, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on him, just a quick summary. Mentions elsewhere of Mark occur frequently in earlier parts of Paul's ministry that are detailed in Acts. He's sometimes called John as well. So this is John Mark, Barnabas' cousin. He was an assistant to Paul and Barnabas on Paul's first missionary journey, but he had deserted the team at a, a city called Pamphylia, back in Acts 13, 13. And in that verse, he's called John. And when he tried to rejoin the group at the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, Paul objected so strongly to his coming along that he and Barnabas parted company, right? Barnabas stayed with Mark and took him along with him on his journeys. And Paul took others and went elsewhere. Mark, though, it seemed also at some point in his life, ministered alongside Peter. 
He's mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, as one who sends greetings with Peter's letter. And Peter describes him as his son, meaning his son in the faith. And, and, and this is very fitting, in my mind, that Mark later associated with Peter. Peter was one, after all, himself who had failed and disappointed his Savior. But he was given a second chance. Perhaps it was Peter, along with Barnabas, that mentored Mark and helped him to, to pick up the pieces of his life after his failure during that first missionary journey. Whatever it may have been, Mark eventually regained the trust of Paul. And by the time Paul wrote Colossians after his third missionary journey, Mark was back with him as a trusted associate. It's pretty cool. In Philemon, Paul mentions him as a fellow worker again. And this young man, whom Paul had rejected earlier, eventually became one of the greatest helpers of Paul. He's mentioned in Paul's last letter of 2 Timothy, where Paul instructs Timothy on his journey to come see him, that he needs to pick up Mark and bring him with him, for he's useful to me for service. He became useful to Paul again. How heartening it must have been for Mark to hear these commendations from Paul, whom he had so disappointed in the past. I'm useful to him. I've been forgiven. I'm useful to him again. Paul's parenthetical instruction to the Colossians implies that Mark's failure may have been well known and that there might have existed like a, a leeriness in trusting Mark after what happened years earlier back in Pamphylia. Paul wanted Mark, he wanted to help Mark to regain trust and to be treated with respect again in his life. And think of this, Mark was later granted an extremely high honor as being one of only four men responsible for writing one of the inspired gospel accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. What an amazing man John Mark must have been. And the lesson Mark teaches us is the glory of the God who grants second chances. If you're anything like me, you have regrets in life, things in your past that you wish you hadn't done or said. Maybe it's even things from your present that you regret. Points where you failed. But Mark teaches us that those failures need not define the entirety of your life. Keep seeking Christ as Mark did, and help will come to aid you in picking up the pieces of your life so that the end result of your life will be one of usefulness and meaning, just like it was for Mark. Usefulness and meaning and importance in the kingdom of God. Doing the hard work of rebuilding trust is very much worth it. Mark's life displays this. And if you're on, like Paul was, the receiving end of the consequences of another person's failures, then be like Paul was in Mark's case. Be willing to forgive and allow that person a second chance to earn your trust again. The end of your life may prove that it was a wise thing to do. Let's move on to Jesus or justice. So Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus, Justice, were the only Jewish follow, followers or fellow workers that Paul had alongside of him. All the others of his kinsmen had left him, and these three uh, remained, proved to be an encouragement to Paul. This is the only mention of this person in the Bible, so we don't know much about him, other than that he was Jewish and that he shared a name with his Savior, and that he had taken on the Latin surname Justice, which means righteous. The lesson I suggest we can glean from Jesus' justice is the importance of being willing to serve in the background without the need for recognition. 
The qualities of being humble and good are suggested in his name. Perhaps those are the qualities that he exhibited. Those who serve with no concern for recognition are highly prized by the Lord Jesus. In fact, they mirror Jesus' own willingness to humble himself and to behave humbly and and meekly without any fanfare or sense of their self-importance. Jesus' justice perhaps served quietly in the background, accomplishing things that many likely took for granted. And you know, there are many like this in our midst today who serve Christ like this. And I would encourage you to cultivate this attitude within yourselves as well, not needing to be recognized, being willing to humbly serve in the background. In another sense, Jesus' justice reminds us in his name that the one who assists all of us most faithfully is none other than the Savior himself, Jesus. Jesus, the one who never leaves us or forsakes us. Jesus, our source of encouragement. Jesus, the one who never forgets us. Jesus, the just and righteous one who made us and who holds all things together is there in the background of your life ministering to you so that you can continue in the work of making this unseen one known to the world about you. This is the lesson of Jesus' justice. So let's move on to another one whom we have already met. Epaphras, important Epaphras. Remember, he was the one who was the theme of my introduction. And and I taught uh, this on the introduction to Colossians. I wrote a song about Epaphras. Do you guys remember that song? We're going to sing it again. That's going to be part of the benediction. We've got to sing sing ourselves out of Colossians, okay? Okay. so I, I wrote an entire historical narrative in, in story form that I, I shared with you that day because I was so impressed when I began studying Colossians for the purpose of teaching it um, of what an important role Epaphras played in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, those three Lycus Valley cities that he ministered in. Epaphras is mentioned elsewhere at the beginning of this letter as being one who had informed Paul of some of the situation in Colossae. He's, he is mentioned here uh, or he, he is mentioned as being like Onesimus, one of their number. So he was a member of the Colossian church. In fact, he had been a teacher, an important teacher in the Colossian church. Perhaps he was the founder and the pastor of that church. The evangelist and also the evangelist that took the gospel to Laodicea and Hierapolis. In Philemon, Epaphras is mentioned as well. He's mentioned as one who sends his greetings. He's there called Paul's fellow prisoner, similar to Aristarchus. It could be that he was not a literal prisoner, uh, but it could also be that he was, in fact, imprisoned alongside Paul at this point. It could be why Epaphras was not with Tychicus and Onesimus as they returned to Colossae to deliver the letter. But Paul describes Epaphras in, in more detail than any other associate listed here. He said here to be always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God, For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So the lesson for us in Epaphras' life, in his example, is one of being a loving and loyal prayer warrior. Epaphras lived out that instruction Paul had given to the Colossians back in chapter 4, verse 2. He was devoted to prayer in a profound sense. The word behind laboring earnestly in the Greek is agonizomai, which means to struggle or to fight strenuously. 
It's the word behind our English word, agony. For Epaphras, praying was an important work. It was the important work. Like our visitor from uh, two weeks ago in our Sunday school hour who told us, and I might get this not exactly correct, but he basically said to us, prayer's not preparation for the battle. Prayer is the battle. This is what Epaphras exhibited in his life. Deep involvement in spiritual warfare, laboring in earnest prayer, struggling and fighting in prayer on behalf of the Colossians. This is an example we need to follow, his devotion to prayer. But let's move on to the next character. We're all familiar with this guy, Luke, right? Luke is called here by Paul the beloved physician. This is how we know Luke was a physician. Um, He also wanted to greet the church in Colossae. And Luke's name is actually only two other, and only in other two other places in the New Testament besides here. He's in Philemon 1.24, and he's in 2 Timothy 4.11. Again, that's at the end of Paul's life. And it's said there that Luke was still with Paul while imprisoned, awaiting execution. It would seem that Luke accompanied Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. It could be that because Paul had had reoccurring health issues on his first missionary journey, that he took, took Luke along with him on the second and third as his personal doctor. Um, in the book of Acts, there are portions of that book later on called the we passages of the book. Um, because it's narrated as if the author of Acts, who was Luke, was present for the events. So this is evident because at certain places in Acts... Um, the first person plural pronoun, we, is used in the narratives, right? So he was along for the ride with Paul in many places. And though Luke is not mentioned elsewhere very much, and we don't know a great deal about his life, we certainly learn a lot from Luke. You see, Luke is responsible for the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And these two books in the New Testament, they comprise more information and material than all of Paul's letters combined. I wasn't aware of that until I had uh, came across that in my study. We have a lot of information that we rely on Luke for. It's obvious that Luke was an educated man, as any physician would have been back then. He was a cultured man. Um, and the literary quality of his Greek in the book of Acts and in Luke uh, show that he was an educated and, and a cultured man. And the attention that he paid to details is mind-blowingly meticulous. Luke's recording of of various historical facts came under scrutiny by liberal higher criticism in the last century, and and, and many of his assertions were critiqued as inaccurate. But you know what? Time and again, as more manuscript evidence became available, as more archaeological evidence came to light, Luke's account has been proven accurate over and over and over again. He was a very precise and accurate historian. The lesson for us from the life of Luke is this, seeking excellence and sincerity in everything that we do. Paul had told the Colossians that whatever they do in word or deed, to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, and he had told them that whatever they do, to do it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Don't slack off. Do your work excellently as if for Jesus. To Titus, Paul wrote the following. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This 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 is exactly what Luke embodied. 
Opponents have tried to come against him throughout the years to call into question his, histor- his historical accounts, and every one of them have been put to shame, and Luke has been shown to have integrity. Luke embodied this in his writing. The thoroughness with which he painstakingly confirmed every detail as accurate is amazing. And this is an important characteristic for us to embody as well. Integrity in pursuing excellence and accuracy in the things that we do. Doing things right the first time as much as is humanly possible. This is the lesson from Luke's life. Let's move on. We're going to skip Demas as we're going to save him for last. But we're going to move on to Nympha in chapter 4 verse 15. It says there, Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that's in her house. This is another person who only appears here in Colossians and nowhere else. We're not even 100% certain that Nympha is her name, or if it is Nymphas, and the church was in his house. Uh, because the King James, if you have that, it renders it as masculine, and the New American Standard and a number of other newer translations renders it as feminine. So, according to the commentator Grant Osborne, there's slightly more manuscript support for Nympha being female than male. So, and I say this somewhat in jest, but sadly I could totally see some in our day and age attempting to make a stretch like this. Nympha or Nymphos was not transgender. This is just one of the few instances in the copying of and recopying of ancient manuscripts where a detail gets confused in the copying. So more of the recent English translations render this name as feminine since the older manuscripts tend to lean that way. The important thing about Nympha is that she opened her home in the fellowship to the fellowship of believers in Laodicea, a church that met in her home. This was the common meeting place in the early church before congregational buildings were constructed to accommodate growing and, and, and full meetings. And the lesson taught to us by Nympha is the importance of practicing hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 8-9 says, Above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. This would seem to have been the practice of Nympha. What a blessing for me to know that there are so many of you here in our church who model this so well. You open your homes and you let us come in and make messes and move things around like we did last night over at Scott Madonna's house. And you you do it because you love us and you know you want want us to know that you love us. You're selfless and you're giving and you're kind when you're hospitable. And God uses people who do the seemingly small task of inviting others into their homes in great ways in his kingdom. I think of Brother Jeff Hayes' testimony of how he came to know Jesus. Much of it occurred because a family just invited him over often and spent time. Spent time just getting to know him to share meals with them around their dinner table when he was in college. I think of that. What an amazing thing generous hospitality is. Jesus actually lists elements of hospitality as the test for entrance into his kingdom. He says, For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. 
Nympha embodied this. And I would say for us, we should follow Nympha's example and learn to grow in hospitality. So let's move on. Archippus. He's the final person that's listed by Paul in this list here. So he's only mentioned one other place in the New Testament, so we don't know much about him. He appears in the opening of Philemon in verses 1 to 2, where it says, To Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So from this verse, many believe that Archippus was the son of Philemon and Aphia. It's very possible that he was the pastor in interim while Epaphras was away um, in Rome, there at the church in Colossae. Um, Paul calls him there a fellow soldier. So Paul seems to be familiar with Archippus. And it would seem that Archippus was one who engaged in the work of ministry, given how Paul addresses him. In Colossians, though, it's easy to get the sense in the reading that when when what Paul wrote to him, that he was not being as diligent as he should have been. Archippus had received a ministry in the Lord that he needed to see through to its fulfillment. And we don't know exactly what that task was, preaching, serving, etc., but some have read this and assumed that Archippus may have been slacking off. And I don't know that we have to make that leap necessarily and to come down hard on Archippus. I don't know that the Colossians would have read it that way since they knew him. But that said, even if Archippus was not being negligent in his task or in his ministry, the lesson we've learned from the life of Archippus is the importance of perseverance. Galatians 6.9 tells us, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Philippians 3.13-14 says, But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Hebrews 3, 14, we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our conviction firmly to the very end. To the church in Smyrna, Jesus spoke these words in Revelation 2, 10, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. So there are struggles And there are hardships ahead for all of us that will require faith to persevere. It's Christ's call to all of us to be ready for times when our faith will be tested and when we're tempted to give up and to retreat. The victor's crown of life awaits those who press on and persevere. And this brings us to our last character that Paul mentioned back in verse 14, where he said, and also Demas... Demas is only mentioned here and in Philemon, verse 24. And there's one final mention of Demas at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, where Paul conveys the sad news. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was an associate of Paul when he was imprisoned in Rome. He visited often. It could be that Demas was present even when when Paul was dictating his letter to the Colossians, to the one who wrote it down for him. It was his common practice to use a secretary of sorts who would write as Paul dictated. Was Demas there to overhear Paul speak back in Colossians 3 verses 1 to 3 when he said, you've been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God, 
Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Whether Demas heard Paul say it in that moment or not, we don't know. We do know that Demas lost sight of the things of heaven and his Savior. He let his mind drift back to the things of earth. And the allure and the temptations of this world overwhelmed Demas to the point that he abandoned Paul. He set his mind on the things of earth and forgot about his life hidden with Christ and the Savior who loved him and died for him. And what a tragic loss Demas was for him and for Paul. The lesson of the life of Demas is warning. It's warning. Even Jesus had his Judas who betrayed him. Even Paul had his Demas who deserted him. Anyone in ministry can tell of those that they have known who failed to persevere and they abandoned the glory of that unseen heavenly realm above for the fading yet alluring world beneath. Their love for this world outweighed their love for their Savior and behind them they leave broken hearts and ministry unfulfilled. I don't want this to be the model of my life. I don't want this to be the model for any of your lives as well. We've got nine other examples to follow in these verses before us today beside disappointing Demas. Any one of them will lead us to a happier end than Demas. Whether it's dependable Tychicus or transformed Onesimus or sacrificial Aristarchus, second chance Mark, behind the scenes Jesus, Justice, the prayer warrior Epaphras, the careful and diligent Luke, hospitable Nympha, or persevering Archippus. Choose one, any one besides Demas to be your model. Don't let his story be your own. Let his life be a warning of your of your constant need to keep seeking the things that are above and to set your mind there instead of here. Paul concludes the letter, and I'm going to conclude the sermon with the sentence written with his own hand. This was his common practice to make sure his letters bore the distinguishing mark of authenticity to prevent fake letters ascribed to him from gaining any traction. He says, Paul, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. As he wrote, remember my chains, it could be that he literally had to look past the chains that were shackling his own wrist. Yet the last word that he left them with was, grace be with you. Paul was writing to a church that had received the grace of Christ. And he just named a bunch of names that had been transformed by the grace of Christ. What a privilege to have been in that number, to know Paul. To have your name written in a letter from him would have become a high honor to all the churches in those early days. Jesus told his disciples, though, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. It's an amazing thing to think of, that if you know Christ, if you've trusted him as your Savior and believed the gospel, then His gracious hand has written your name in heaven. What a treasure awaits you there. Not here. Keep seeking that heavenly kingdom above everything else in all of your life. 
and may his grace be with you. Let's pray. And we'll have the band come up and sing important Epaphras as the benediction. Pretty excited about that. Lord Jesus, uh, thank you so much for these nine examples of faithful and persevering and careful and sacrificial and dependable, praying, diligent, hospitable servants that the Apostle Paul knew. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for their example, Father. But also, Father, let us take the warning that Demas gives us, that we all must persevere. And in order to do that, Father, we must stay focused on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. Help us, Lord Jesus, to love you and your coming kingdom more than anything in this world and in this life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing (laughs) Important Epaphras. Can I look off your music with you? Thank you, Rachel. All right. (laughs) Ready? pray like Epaphras, okay? Depart in the peace of Christ, and may his grace be with all of you. Amen. Amen.